Welcome to r slash, a podcast where I read the best posts from across Reddit. Today's subreddit is r slash malicious compliance, where an angry customer gets exactly what he asked for. Our next Reddit post is from Carador. So I work at a small garden center, and we have a system where if the line is getting too long, the person on the register calls on the radio to open another register. Basically, this allows staff to go do other things when there aren't enough customers to justify having two, three, or four tills open. I'm sure you can guess where this is going already. Over the last week or so, it's been absolutely baking by UK standards. And to top it all off, our register area is what used to be the main greenhouse before our site got expanded. So it's an old greenhouse with little airflow in scorching weather, so it was hot as balls in there. This was causing a combination of angry customers and exhausted staff. And to top it all off, our uniform is more what you'd call a guideline than an actual uniform. All we need is a navy polo, toe cap boots, and you're good to go. So when I hear the call to open up a second register, there's already about three or four customers in the line. So I walk past the line with some candy, my water bottle, and go to the tills. That's when a six-foot-tall rugby player-looking guy at the back of the line puts his arm up to stop me. What follows when something like this? Oi, mate, don't you know what a line is? But I'm... No buts, you do not get to skip. I'm just going... I do not care. You wait like the rest of us. At this point, with the guy getting pretty angry and turning a very deep shade of crimson, I look at the register with an exasperated look, catch my colleague's eye, and just say, fine then, and wait. It was too hot to argue over this, and I wasn't going to risk this getting physical. My colleague, with a knowing smile, picks up her radio and says, Can I have another till, please? I don't think OP can make it. No one arrives, so we wait. It only took about five minutes to get to the front of the line, but the angry dude is getting redder by the second. So he walks up to the register with a loud, FINALLY! I'm now at the front of the line, so I walk up to my register, log in, and say, Can I help anyone on this side? There was a loud, ARE YOU MESSING WITH ME? from the angry dude, but my colleague was quick to loudly point out that I did try to explain it to him several times. That he got very aggressive with me for doing so, and honestly, he was lucky that we were serving him at all. He decided to just leave instead of embarrass himself any further. He left his purchases at the register and just left. I'm glad I didn't get into trouble for that one, but it was a fun bit of malicious compliance. And down in the comments, we have this story from Brandy Aidenlove. A similar thing happened to me on Black Friday. Our store was set to open at 6am. Staff was scheduled to arrive by 5.30am, but by 5am, the line was insane! This was the year that Keurig became popular, and the store where I worked had a special where if you bought 16 packs of K-Cups, you'd get a free Keurig. The crowd absolutely would not let the staff through. Most of us were there by 5.15am. Here we all were, dressed in red and khakis, and not one customer had enough sense to let us get to the doors. At 5.35 a.m., the store manager came outside because he had no staff in the store. He was met by at least 200 people trying to push past him. He quickly ducked back in the store and called the cops for crowd control. We had to have a police escort just to get inside. The store opened on time, but barely. I had the largest single customer sale of the day at 8 a.m. That customer had four carts and spent $12,000. I've refused to work on Black Friday ever since. You can fire me, but I will not work or shop on that day. And beneath that, we have this story from Flame is Love. 
On my first Black Friday in retail, my coworker got her hand broken over a Tickle Me Elmo, and I nearly got stabbed for being out of stock of a $50 CD player. Our next Reddit post is from Night Skater. I'm a 24-year-old guy, and I hosted a friend from college, also a 24-year-old guy who I haven't seen since before the pandemic. Shortly after my friend arrived, we headed to a local bar and grill in our neighborhood. We decided to do the quick 15-minute walk instead of driving so we don't have to worry about leaving the car. We were joined by my new roommate, a 25-year-old guy and also a good friend, and his newish girlfriend who's 22. I don't know her that well, but I've always had friendly encounters with her when we hung out. At the bar, drinks flowed freely, and my friend seemed to really hit it off with our crew. We stayed longer than expected, and by the time that we decided to walk home, it was fully dark and we were all pretty buzzed. It was still hot outside when we got to the apartment complex, so my roommate suggested we hit the community pool. The pool and hot tub were technically closed for the night, but it's not too close to any of the units. And generally, no one cares as long as you're responsible and you don't break glass bottles or anything like that. After debating whether to head back to our place to change first, my roommate insisted we're all friends here, and that we could all just go to the pool in our underwear. Everyone agreed to this, but my roommate's girlfriend said, You guys have fun with that. And she proceeded to just lounge next to the pool on one of the deck chairs and scroll Instagram. We stripped down and hop in the pool, and were having a pretty good time just messing around. After some time had passed, my roommate was chatting with his girlfriend, and then quietly approached me afterwards. Apparently, his girlfriend was very uncomfortable with me wearing just briefs in the pool. To be clear, my roommate and my friend were both wearing boxer briefs. She wanted me to go all the way back to the apartment and change into a swimsuit. I initially protested and said this was all his idea in the first place and how everyone else was in their underwear too. So, what's the difference? It's not like my underwear was white and see-through or anything like that. My roommate asked me to go change for him as a favor so that it didn't turn into an issue between him and her. I was pissed, but I decided to let it go for the time being. When I got back to the apartment, an idea popped into my head. I still had the swimsuit from when I used to swim on the club team in college. So, I put on my Speedo and headed back out armed with another six-pack for the boys in only a t-shirt, towel wrapped around my waist, and flip-flops. I get back to the pool, announce I change into my swimsuit, as requested, drop the towel and ditch the t-shirt, and launch into a wicked cannonball into the pool. I can see the wry smile on my roommate's face, but nothing else was said about my choice of attire. We keep swimming in the pool, and a few minutes later, she announces that she's tired and going to bed. The rest of us stayed out late, had more beers and laughs in the hot tub while the girlfriend was asleep at our place. Our next Reddit post is from Jay Jorge of USA. Some context, I work for an outsourcing company. Before I was hired, there were two people doing my job, but both left before I joined. I was left alone doing the job of two people. Weekly reports were being sent to the client, and the client would visit the job site once a year. There was a general mailbox where the client should email all requests that needed to be addressed. However, that client would completely ignore that email address and would instead always email my email address, ignoring the general one. Since I was alone doing the work of two people, I was almost always behind on the workload. And so other people at the company would complain to the client, who in turn would complain to my managers. The client would complain, how is it possible that OP can't deal with seven or eight daily emails and still be behind on his work? Sure, I was only getting about seven or eight emails from that client a day, but what about the phone, the other emails, and Skype chat where people were always trying to contact me? So, the client complained to my managers about me being a lazy idiot who can't even handle a handful of emails a day. My manager set up a meeting to absolutely grill me. 
OP, you always look so busy, and you're only getting a handful of emails a day, and you're constantly behind on your work. How is that possible? The client isn't happy either, so you either improve dramatically or the client wants us to replace you. I explained that answering emails to the client wasn't the only thing that I did. I mentioned all the other work that I had to do as well. So their solution was for me to write down every single thing that I did throughout the day. I asked for clarification. You mean emails and calls, right? No, no, everything. Then, when you're done, email us the log at the end of the day. So, here goes my malicious compliance. I did exactly what I was told. I wrote down everything that I did during the workday, including bathroom, smoke, and coffee breaks. If the client wrote to me on Skype, I wrote down the timestamp of when the client asked for something and the timestamp of each and every reply. Then, after I had about 500 lines on my Excel sheet, I added my personal favorite to the end. Time wasted to fill in the sheet. One hour. My first manager laughed when he saw my malicious compliance. The other one, not so much. But he can't do anything because I was just doing what I was told. A few months later, when the client visited me, he effing loved it as well. My managers told me to stop doing it after three days. They were now fully aware of all the work that I was doing. Down in the comments, we have this story from Stimple Garamond. A few years ago, a manager told me that my job was being transferred to his office a hundred miles away. I was getting a different job in my office, but first I had to train my replacement. Oh, and I had to do it in the next two months. I told my manager I was having an operation next week, so I would be out of work for six to eight weeks. So, my manager decided that I had to write a guide on what I did, which is inward chipping. I had to write about how I did it, what I did when things went wrong, and my favorite part, what to do if something happens that's never happened before. So, in that spirit, chapter one of the guide was what to do in the event of a bear attack. Okay, this actually reminds me, back when I was in, god, what was it, sixth grade, fifth grade, I I don't know. I had a teacher who gave us the assignment about natural disasters. So we were paired off into groups and we all had to pick a different disaster like wildfires or floods or something like that. And we had to write a group report on what to do in the event of that disaster. My group got volcanoes. (laughs) And like I was struggling, absolutely struggling to find any information I could find about volcano safety. Because one, they're super, super rare. And two, a lot of volcano activity is like totally random. People don't see it coming. Because like, obviously, if you know a volcano is going to erupt, you don't hang out next to it. I mean, keep in mind, I'm a millennial, so the internet wasn't super accessible at that time. It's not like I could just pull out my phone and look up online about volcano safety. And even then, this was years and years ago. So how many websites were there available about volcano safety anyways? That meant that, honest to God, my one and only resource to write this project was our school library. So me, as a kid, (laughs) goes to the school library and I'm like, Hello, ma'am, do you have any books on volcano safety? And the librarian is like, no, of course not. (laughs) Who writes books about volcano safety? So because I couldn't find any information, I basically had to just BS my way through the entire assignment. I distinctly remember my teacher, Mr. Duncan was his name, called me up to his desk and he sat me down in front of me and he pulled out my paper and his legs crossed. He's looking very stern and serious and he gives the paper kind of a disapproving once over and he looks at me with that unhappy, disappointed father look that some male teachers have and he starts reading from my paper. Ahem. 
When a, <laughs> when a volcano erupts, there's not much to do. You're pretty much just dead because it's a volcano. In fact, if a volcano erupts in your town, you're pretty much dead, so this paper isn't really going to be helpful for you. Normally, this would be where I talk about the importance of setting up a will, but if your house is also next to a volcano, it's pretty much destroyed too, so you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Everyone else in the class wrote like a multi-page paper, but mine was just one paragraph that said, eh, don't worry about it. If a volcano blows up in your town, you're pretty much dead. So after reading my one paragraph paper out loud to me, my teacher looks at me and says, Dabney, this is the paper that you're submitting? I was really a smartass when I was a kid, so I just kind of shrugged and was like, am I wrong though? <laughs> I got an A on that paper. Our next Reddit post is from Luther Williams. So I live in South Korea, but I work for a US company in South Korea. Because I work for an American company, and I'm one of the few employees at my company who is actually American, my company doesn't issue me a letter that basically says that I'm employed in South Korea. This means that I have restrictions on my Korean bank accounts. I can only withdraw about $216 a day from an ATM, and if I go in person to a teller, I can only withdraw about $870 a day. Normally, this doesn't present a problem for me. I also can't have a debit or a credit card. Instead, I get a bank book, which is kind of like an electronic checkbook that's a physical thing that you carry around. However, eventually, this did create a problem. I signed a lease for a new apartment, and the deposit was $8,700. Yes, this is normal for South Korea. So I transferred the money from my American bank to my Korean bank. Then I went to the bank in person to transfer the money to my landlord. I get there, and the teller tells me that I can only transfer $870 a day. My first idea was to ask my landlord if she'd be cool with me transferring her 870 bucks a day for 10 days, but she did not like that idea. So I'm sitting there arguing when the bank manager comes out. He's a nice enough guy and speaks good English. Basically, he says that because of the type of account I have, there's no way that I can transfer more than $870 a day. However, I really need this money, and I start thinking, and then a light bulb goes off in my head. I ask him, if I close my account, do I get my money? The manager says, yes, we would give you cash. And if I close my account, I can open a new one? Of course. Is there a waiting period after closing my account to open a new one? No. Fantastic. Please close my account. Sure, I'll need your bank book and we'll destroy it. I hand them my bank book and they destroy it. I sign some papers and close the account. The bank manager closes my account and then gives me all of my money in an envelope. Is there anything else I can help you with today? I smile and pull out my passport. Yes, I'd like to open a new bank account. My bank manager looks at me and it dawns on him what I just did. He laughs, shakes his head and goes, sure, not a problem. I opened a new account, deposited a few bucks and left with my deposit in my pocket. That was our slash malicious compliance. And if you like this content, you can support me and unlock extra episodes by signing up for sponsorships. Click the anchor.fm link in the description and you can get access to episodes that I couldn't publish to YouTube because they were too spicy for monetization.